What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Welcome, everyone, to another Baseball America Prospect Handbook podcast. Along with Ben Badler, I am John Manuel. I want to thank our friends at DraftDay.com for sponsoring the Prospect Handbook podcast. DraftDay.com is a new concept that offers short-term or daily fantasy sports games for real money. The concept is simple. You pick the day you want to play instead of fantasy lineup. If your picks perform well that day, you win. You can play for free or real money, and they award cold, hard cash nightly to the top-performing players. They've already awarded more than $10 million, and it's completely legal to play. DraftDay.com also has a new rapid-fire game that takes one minute to play with huge payouts. Just pick between a few choices of players and choose the ones that will score the most points. It's that easy. All you need is three of five correct to double your money. DraftDay is offering a special offer to Baseball America listeners, so be sure to head to DraftDay.com and enter the promo code BAPODCAST, and that'll start you off with a free instant cash bonus. If you like free money, head to DraftDay.com and use promo code BAPODCAST. And thanks again to our friends at DraftDay.com for sponsoring the podcast this year. We've moved the Prospect Handbook podcast here to Monday just because Friday with the Prospect Handbook is so crammed. And usually we come in fresh Monday, Ben, and we, uh, you and JJ usually talk a lot about last week's Prospect Handbook and kind of, uh, pro- uh, I should say Prospect Hot Sheet, and then kind of spin that ahead to what, the, you know, what else is going on in the world of prospects. But this weekend, uh, kind of the biggest news in the world of prospects was uh, yet another free agent, and it just seems – uh, ben, uh, he's not a free agent yet, but it just seems like the Cuban uh, influx of players to Major League Baseball uh, and just keeps on growing. And it seems like it started with a trickle maybe seven, eight years ago when you had Yunel Escobar enter the draft and Brian Pena kind of come in there. And you had, you know, just Kendrys Morales. It seems like, wow, maybe it won't get bigger than, than Jose Contreras in 2003 or Kendrys Morales soon after him. But you know, Kendrys Morales got, what, $4 million? And it was quite a bargain and has been a, a good major league player. And then Alexi Ramirez and Dion Vicieto. And now it's just a flood. It's just, it's hard to keep up with. And, uh, you know, with what Yasiel Puig has done in the major leagues uh, this year, just kind of uh, how dynamic he's been. And now we have another name to throw into the mix in Jose Dariel Abreu, the burly right-handed hitting first baseman who's been one of the best hitters in Serie Nacional in recent years and on the Cuban national team. He was not on the Cuban team that you and I saw that uh, played against the U.S. college national team this summer and lost all five of those games. Um, but he was on Cuba's World Port team, a team that won the, that uh, tournament in July. And he's clearly one of the top players uh, in Cuba uh, over the last five years, especially uh, I think it could be argued one of the, the best hitter uh, from a combination of, of hitting and power. So we're going to break down Jose Abreu a little bit today and we're not going to get into the nuts and bolts of how he got out and where he is and all those kind of things. But let's just focus on on the evaluating the player, Ben. And uh, is it safe to say in your mind that he's the best hitter uh, in the last – say you take the last five years in total, is he the best combination of hit, abil- hit ability and power in Serie Nationale? I think of the guys who are there right now just in terms of pure offensive ability. I think there's really – I don't think there's any argument about – from a certainly from a performance standpoint, I don't think anybody – has been better than him. I mean, it's 
Uh, he, he can hit. He can. Uh, he he has a pretty good approach at the plate in, in terms of plate discipline. Uh, you know, he is prone to chasing some of the harder, you know, better breaking balls off the plate. Uh, but then he just also has a, a ton of power too. Um, really, I mean, if if you look at Cuba over the last five years, you know, the best offensive players have got to be him. Uh, Cespedes. I mean, Cespedes was the guy who. Everybody I talked to, pretty much every scout I talked to, was just raving about Jonas Cespedes, not just for the offensive ability that he has, but the athleticism, too, right. and the ability to, you know, he's playing more of a, you know, some more corner outfield now, but you could put him in center field. He, he played center field in Cuba. Uh, he can run. He can throw. He's just an absolute dynamite athlete. I think a lot of, if you survey most scouts, and then I've talked to a lot of scouts about this, uh, I think they felt that Cespedes, you know, if you compare Cespedes versus Abreu or really anybody else who's in Cuba right now uh, or even compared to Puig at the time, although there was just less information known about Puig, it was a bit of a different situation with him. I think people viewed Cespedes as the top guy in Cuba. Uh, right. Now, the money, I think, is going to be a little bit different just because people looked at the, the success that Cespedes has had and, and some of these other Cuban hitters that have come over. Um, although it hasn't been, you know, as I think as universal as, as some people uh, think. There's, you know, certainly a lot of there's certainly some guys in Cuba who've come over with uh, big numbers who've who kind of struggled in, in the minor leagues even. But I think you know you look at Cespedes, you have Alfredo Despagne, who's like, I mean, I stood next to him in Japan. I mean, I'm five ten. He was a little bit shorter than me, uh, a little. <laughs> little heavier too also he's got like a curvy pocket kind of guy but just unbelievable bat speed uh i saw him hit a ball 490 feet in batting practice not exaggerating it was unbelievable <laughs> to watch him and and, and jose abreu take bp so i mean you take those guys ulieski guriel who's you know now third baseman he's like 29 years old uh very inconsistent at international tournaments but uh, you know, you look at those, those would be the the top guys in Cuba. Every scout is going to be a little bit different on each one. But just in terms of the overall offensive package that Abreu brings, and, and like, you know, like we said in the story, there's there's a little bit of a split camp on how it's going to translate to major league pitching. Uh, but based on what he did in Cuba, uh, I think you got to say he was the top offensive player in Cuba at the time that he left. Yeah, and and uh, you know, bringing up some of the other names, I think it's a good place to start because you've talked about. I mean, I, and I actually just wrote this column recently after we saw the U.S. Uh, Cuba series and saw the last two games here in uh, Cary and Durham, and that Cuban team, uh, you know, wasn't uh, clearly wasn't their top team, but you know, Jose Fernandez was on that team. We, we ranked him as their top prospect coming out of the WBC um, this year. Abreu was the number three Cuban. Uh, on that list, number four overall on the list, but he was behind uh, Fernandez and Guriel, who are offer more defensive value, and that's I guess what stands out to me about Abreu. When you think about the the, the Cuban players and then the column I wrote, you, I could have uh, done a sidebar on just the Cubans who a Cuban team of big leaguers, guys who've just have defected. I'm not talking about you know um, Yonder Alonso's or Yasmani Grandal's guys who came out came over when they were younger. Um, or even Jose Fernandez. I think I cheated and put Jose Fernandez on that team. Uh, but the Cubans in the big leagues now, there are a lot of pretty good athletes. The only guys I think who – and Jose Abreu does not fall into that Alexi Ramirez or Puig or Suspedes 
athleticism <laughs> camp or Janelle Escobar, Hechevaria, those kind of guys, it, I guess his closest comparisons among Cubans who've left recently and who have become big leaguers, uh, Ben, are guys like Dion Vicieto and Kenry Morales, bigger, physical, where the, the, the value is in the bat. Uh, that, that's fair to say, isn't it? I mean, is there another guy who's com- that he's comparable to who's left Cuba in recent years? No, it's, uh, it's you know, it's... It's a first base DH only body. He probably weighs. He's he's really big. <laughs> yeah. He probably weighs like two hundred fifty pounds. I think Cuba lists it like on their WBC roster. They they listed him as at least two hundred fifty pounds, and they're they're pretty unforgiving when they list the uh, the heights and weights. It's not like you have uh, guys in the states who are listed at five eleven when they're you know five eight five nine. Um, they 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 just say it pretty straight. So. Uh, he's, you know, it's big guy. It's, it, there's no chance you couldn't really put him in left field uh, or, or like try to stick him at like third base the way the Tigers are, are doing with like Miguel Cabrera. Uh, he, he's he's got to play first base or, or he's got a DH. Uh, so there's, you know, like you said, it's it's not a lot of athleticism. The draw is is the middle of the order power. And if you think the bat is going to translate against major league pitching, uh, then you have a you know a true middle of the, the lineup player. Yeah, that's that, that to me. And the thing is, uh, so the, the, the one of the things we talked about yesterday before we recorded the podcast was the success of Cespedes and being a big hit in his first season, being a, a success, helping the athletics of the postseason, all that helped beget the contract, uh, you know, for uh, Yasiel Puig and help the Dodgers go all in on Puig, at least financially. I think there were a lot of factors there that, Played into there was an unknown, but the Dodgers obviously trusted their scouts and uh, had a lot of money to throw around with their new ownership. Wanted to make a statement, all those things. Plus, they, um, you know, they I think the the Suspedes example uh, made them at least have some confidence to throw all the money they did at Puig, even though Abreu is not that kind of player. I, he almost seems like a safer bet in some ways, Ben, because of this track record of hitting. But at the same time. He's he's just not a it's not a pure bat speed swing, right? I mean, this guy's it feels like this guy is a strength guy who has a pretty impressive hand-eye coordination and just real feel for the barrel. Yeah, if you if you watch him, and there's this is the thing with him is it's it's just like Cespedes. Scouts have seen him at so many international tournaments over the last few years, or just like exhibition series. Uh, you know, they were in I think they were in Taiwan at, at the end of 2012 wasn't like a big tournament that got a lot of play, but right. you know, scouts would go, go there and see him or, or see everybody on that Cuban team. And so they've seen him there. There's all the, all, I shouldn't say all, but a lot of these Cuban games are broadcast on television. There's so much video of these guys. You can even see it on, on YouTube. So they know him extremely well, at least the teams that have done their homework on this guy. So if, if you see him on Video, you can see some stuff where it's a little bit unconventional, and you do see a lot of stuff from a lot of Cuban hitters that are unconventional. I mean, Guriel has like a big bat rap. Uh, Jose Fernandez, as you were talking about, I should have included him as as one of the top hitters in Cuba. Certainly more of like a flat swing guy, right? A high average, so than power. Uh, but obviously, playing second base, middle of the diamond gives him a lot of value uh, in, in the prime of his career. But uh, you know. Fernandez has that like weird front foot where he kind of turns his back ankle to the pitcher. Uh, you see a lot of weird things, and obviously Despagne's swing is 
you know, long and hitchy and has all this stuff that you wouldn't teach in the United States, but you're, you're, you're in Cuba, you're facing guys who, I mean, you, you might face a guy like, uh, you know, like Norhe Ruiz, who we just wrote about it was, you know, only 19 years old or, uh, or, or there's a few other guys there who can, you know, run their fastball up to the low nineties, but, you know, a lot of guys are facing or, you know, trying to trick them with sliders or, or they're throwing like 85, 88 miles an hour. Right. Uh, talent level is there. It's, you know, some of the stuff that you, you know, it, it, we can call it a, an inefficiency in his swing, but it's not, if you're in Cuba, it, it works for you. You know, why not do it? If, if you're doing something that maybe helps you generate a, a little bit more power or, artificially in your swing rather than trying to you know stay short and, and compact to the ball so yeah when you see a Brayu, it's he has a little unconventional toe tap and he he kind of he cuts himself off and he's almost like fighting his own body when he swings at, at an inner you know a pitch that's on the the inner half so there's some concerns about like you said with the, the bat speed it's, it's more strength than bat speed so all right when when the velocity starts getting up there and you know, he starts having to face all these guys who seems like everybody nowadays <laughs> is, is throwing, you know, 95 plus out of the bullpen and, and starters are throwing harder than ever, too. Um, is that going to be an issue for him? You know, the, there's some scouts that, that do have question marks about that. Uh, obviously, those aren't going to be the, the ones that are going to sign him because there are guys who do think he's that the power is going to translate. And that's gonna, and that's those are gonna be the teams that are gonna be in on him. So I, I do think that it's, you know, it's it's really hard to ignore the performance uh, that he put up in in Cuba and and that he's done uh, for the most part in, in international competition and at most places he's gone. Uh, but you're right, it's not. There's some things that he does where if if you were scouting a guy in the United States, you'd say, all right, let's that might be a little bit of a pause. And I think it's gonna be a pause for. For some scouts, just the way that his hitting mechanics work right now at the plate for him. And Victor Mesa even said uh, here in Durham in the last game, I got a chance to talk to him briefly. I think I've milked more comments out of this five-minute uh, interview that I did with him uh, than the most five-minute interviews that I've, I've had. But but he just plainly said it that the Cuban players uh, have to adjust and have had a hard time adjusting to velocity. It's what you wrote. Um, I think it's what you wrote when Puig <laughs> was a free agent. I think it's what you wrote with Suspedes. I know you reinforced that was really reinforced during the WBC where Cuba even had trouble with like Loke Van Mill, who's kind of been a journeyman reliever in the minor leagues, um, but was closing for the Netherlands and, uh, and pitched against them. And it, it's, you know, it's odd to me that Cuba has had these issues internationally against top-level pitching, while at the same time, the Cuban players who have come to the big leagues have generally lived up to a lot of the hype. You know, I mean, Alexi Ramirez was not the star on Cuba's national team. In fact, he had to play outfield. And then now he's known in the major leagues for his defense at shortstop. You know, that's like his calling card. But Viciedo, who obviously was very young, uh, but has turned into a fairly productive uh, big league hitter, despite, you know, kind of having the the right, right profile. I know he's having a little bit of a tough year this year, but the guy did hit, you know, 25 home runs in 2012 for the White Sox. Um, there are a lot of productive hitters uh, who are out of Cuba in the major leagues right now. And it feels like Abreu's, you know, I understand that, you know, you have to have a lot of confidence. You're going to have to have a lot of confidence in your evaluation of him because the money's going to be so big. But it does seem like there's a lot of reasons to have confidence 
that this guy's going to hit, uh, Ben. Uh, the other part of this, I guess, for, for, you know, the other piece of the puzzle is, uh, you know, he is playing first base, and that usually is not, you know, he doesn't have as much, he doesn't really offer much defensive value. I think it's safe to say that, especially compared to the other guys we're talking about. But there aren't a lot of first, I mean, we've, we've talked about this. I think you and JJ have talked about it in the, the, this Prospect Handbook podcast. There aren't a lot of first base prospects in the minor leagues. I mean, the day that he's cleared, let's say that this happens, the OFAC, and it's detailed in your story, he's got to get cleared by the U.S. government to be a free agent, established residency elsewhere. He's got to be cleared by the U.S. government that this, basically that his money won't go back to Cuba, that the money will stay out of Cuba. Whatever he's paid will, won't go back to Cuba. That's uh, the the, the uh, oversimplification of this OFAC uh, deal. But the day that he signs, he kind of goes to the front of the first base pro- prospect line, does he not? I mean, I don't like Jonathan Singleton. I like Jonathan Singleton, but he's yeah. he does. Uh, I don't think he compares right now. Certainly, to I mean, if you if Abreu and Singleton, uh, you know, tomorrow are both named, uh, you know, for whatever reason, uh, unrestricted free agents. Right. I don't think there's any question that Abreu is going to get more money than Jonathan Singleton. Yep. I'd certainly take Abreu over him. That's a great way to look at it, or like a Dan Vogelbach. Um... I'm just trying to think of other first basemen. It's just the minor leagues. It's just not loaded with big-time first basemen. I was just debating this with J.J. before we came on the podcast. I almost think I'd take Vogelbach just because I believe – not over Abreu, I mean over Singleton because I believe in the, the pure hit ability. Um, maybe I'm following a couple of scouts' Twitter too much because they're, they're, they've they uh, loved seeing Vogelbach. But at the same time, I mean, that's that's what we're talking about. So Abreu's timing is – I think it's pretty fortuitous as far as he's coming along, but there's some position scarcity um, at first base, uh, which there hasn't been in recent years. What are some fits, Ben? I mean, I know we're projecting into the future, um, and we should probably talk. uh, I think these are some of the Twitter questions we've we've actually had. Uh, He's at Ben Badler. I'm at John Manuel B.A. Um, One of the questions I believe is – you know, what, it's from Ben Gavoni is the uh, Twitter name. Uh, what team do you guys feel is the front runner to sign him once it become, he becomes a free agent? Uh, I don't know about front runner, but Ben, ben but who are some, where are some fits that you see for a Jose Abreu? Let's project into this offseason uh, if and when he does become a, a major league free agent. Yeah, I mean, that's no matter how much, you know, whatever you think about Jose Abreu as a team, it obviously depends on on the fit for him. It's not like your side with with somebody like Jorge Soler, um, or or even like Yasiel Puig. I mean, Puig was a, a very different situation, so I, I'd throw him aside for now. But you know, with Soler, it doesn't matter how much outfield depth or who you have in right field right now. You're signing a prospect. You know, you're signing a prospect who's going to be in your system for at least a couple of years. You don't really worry about you know, do we have do we have a spot for him with a right. brave. If you're, well, I guess the Tigers may be able to wedge him in there, but you don't want to have Miguel Cabrera and Prince Fielder and Jose Abreu and trying to find a spot for, <laughs> for all those three guys. If you're the Diamondbacks, you have Paul Goldschmidt. If you're the Reds, you have Joey Votto. I mean, you might you might be, those teams, just for example, might be higher on Jose Abreu than anybody else in the world. It doesn't matter. They're not going to sign him because there's no there's nowhere to play him. Right. So you look around. Who has a need at first base? I mean, well, the first team that jumps out is is the Rangers. Um, yep. They're, they you know team that has a, a history of signing 
Cuban players. Leonis Martin has worked out very well for them. A lot of scouts thought he was going to be a fourth outfielder. Uh, I was always higher on him than than that. I, you know, I, I think he's pretty much become what uh, you know the Rangers and, and other scouts who really liked him thought he was going to be. He was he was on their national team. He was an up and coming player in Cuba uh, at the time that he left. So I, I'm not surprised at, at the season that he's having uh, for them. But I think he that would be the first team that jumps to mind for me. Uh, you know, you look at the major league free agent market for first baseman next year. I mean, who's what do you, I mean, are you going to throw a lot of money at, you know, 32-year-old Mike Napoli who had, uh, you know, health issues in the in the past? That's, you know, I, I wouldn't want to throw a, a ton of money at, at that guy. He's, I mean, he's, he's always been streaky. He's still a streaky hitter, and he's always been a streaky hitter. Yeah, so there, there's not a lot of competition on the first base market for him. He's not going to be, you know, he's not going to be getting, like, Cano or, like, Ellsbury money, I don't think, but... Uh, it's, you got to look at first base. I mean, so if, if Napoli leaves the Red Sox, now the Red Sox have a need of first base. They have a history of signing Cuban players, albeit, you know, with sort of a, you know, a previous regime, uh, Jose Iglesias. Uh, remember, they also, we can talk about the all this wild success that, you know, uh, Puig and uh, are having. Uh, you know, Juan Carlos Linares, who <laughs> is, uh, you know, uh, an outfielder in Cuba put up great numbers. Uh, won gold gloves in Cuba. Was in the prime of his career when he came over. Uh, wasn't like a huge, huge dollar sign. He hasn't hit at all. Um, Jorge Padron is another guy who came over. Hasn't really put up uh, very big numbers either since he's come over. So it's it's not universal that just because you have success, obviously Leslie Anderson too uh, with the Rays, although he's you know older and and I I actually like would like to see him get a shot. Yeah, uh, I agree. But um, it just obviously you know success in Cuba or, or or you know success in the major leagues also isn't really a, a guarantee of, of future success anywhere. But I mean those two teams, the Red Sox and the Rangers, especially the Rangers, really jump out to me as teams with the need, uh, you know, the pirates are, are another team. There was talk about them, uh, you know, <laughs> being interested in Mike Stan, which uh, who wouldn't be interested in Mike Stan, but, right. <laughs> um, you know, I could see that. Like, what would you, <clears throat> I'd rather, if I were them, <laughs> I'd rather keep, I mean, you have Starling Marte and Andrew McCutcheon already. You have Gregory Polanco coming up. I mean, if they're one of the teams that likes Jose Abreu, if you're, you know, you're looking to add another bat, they're going to make the playoffs. They're going to get a, you know, a boost in revenue this year. I could see them being a team that would be interested in, in Jose Abreu and trying to upgrade there if they're a team that's on. I mean, you look at around some of the other teams in the league. You hit, uh, you, the, know. you hit the three high notes, though. For me, I think you that, that's it's just that those are exactly the three teams. I don't mean to interrupt you, but to, to me, Texas and uh, Boston and Pittsburgh stuck out. Uh, from the crowd just because Boston, because they have the financial flexibility and there's not a clear future first baseman there. Uh, right-handed power, Fenway Park, makes a lot of sense. Texas, again, you know, for, uh, there's there's an obvious obvious offensive need with uh, you know, Nelson Cruz and Biogenesis. He's a free agent. Mm -hmm. um, right-handed power, um, especially in the short term, because they certainly have prospects. You know, I, I still think they're a team that makes a lot of sense for a Stanton trade, but if you don't want to Use your prospects for that. You, you hold on to some of those guys. Um, you know, Abreu, 
you could do, I mean, theoretically, you could sign, they could sign Jose Abreu, put him at first base. And I agree that they're, they're, very, they're a lot thinner at first base. Uh, you know, Ronald Guzman I like, but he's way far away. Right. The guy who was their immediate fix at first base, if you look at it from that perspective, was Mike Gold, and they just traded him. Yeah, so I, you could do that. And then even then, if, if Nelson, so now you have even more of a need if, if Nelson Cruz leaves, which I think he probably will. Right. Even if you do that now, they still have, I mean, you could, if they wanted to, I don't think they're going to trade Jerickson Profar, uh, but I mean, they have the prospects to even then on top of that, pull off a Stanton trade, which would be pretty scary. Absolutely. And the other team I wanted to throw out to you that is in that group for me was the Nationals, just because they're coming off a disappointing year. You know, there's, I think it's unlikely that they're going to make the playoffs this year. I think that's safe to say, considering how far out they are. Even in the wild card in the National League, they're under 500. But this is clearly a team that I don't think they're going to go into 2014 thinking it's a rebuild. They're going to go in trying to get back at their 2012 level. And while I know there are a lot of questions about Ryan Zimmerman's future position, you're talking about Adam LaRoche's struggles at first base this year. He's 35. Um, Abreu would seem to, and would it seem like one of the things. One of the guys they missed the most this year, I know the Nat- there are a lot of reasons why the Nationals struggled this year. Some of their middle relievers regressing. The back end of the rotation was pretty pretty poor this year. Um, but the, they, they really seemed like they missed Mike Morse's right-handed power in that lineup. And, uh, you know, Abreu kind of is that, right, that, that right-handed bat who would slide right in, and they don't have an obvious uh, first base answer next year if, if they cut bait on the roach. So I, I was going to throw the Nationals out to you. I don't, off the top of my head, uh, the only Cuban I know the Nationals have been tied to in recent years has been Uneski Maya, and and that signing didn't go great for them. Although sometimes you wonder if maybe they should have given him a shot <laughs> at the the way the back of their rotation has gone this year. Um, but Mike Rizzo, uh, could you see the Nationals and Mike Rizzo making a play for Abreu at first base? I could I could see them being uh, I could definitely see them having interest in him. Like you said, they signed Maya. Uh, you know that was really what after they got rid of. Uh, a bunch of people there right. who were previously running their international scouting. Yes. Um, the post-Jose Rijo cleanup, the post-Smiley Gonzalez cleanup. Yeah. So once they brought in their new crew, that was, that was really like the first big international signing they made. And again, <laughs> he was not, I mean, Unieski Maya has not been very good. And he was an outstanding pitcher in Cuba. He was basically I, their ace in Cuba. I mean, he was the best guy left standing for a while. <laughs> On their yeah, national we talk team. about you know Miguel Gonzalez now. I mean, Gonzalez throws harder than Maya ever did, but it's in terms of performance, I, I think it's it's comparable. Very uh, so. Maya had more feel for pitching than uh, Miguel Gonzalez uh, did, I, I think, and, and and that's what a lot of scouts I talk to think too. Uh, although I know a lot of scouts think uh, Gonzalez is is ahead of Maya in terms of the stuff, but. Uh, you know, I think they got, they felt, I, I think that's one of the reasons that you, you see that the Nationals haven't, you know, really gone full bore back into the international market is because they tried to with Maya, it didn't work out. And I think they, that might cause them a, a little bit of hesitancy, but I can't see them being more involved. Uh, I think, uh, I'm trying to think back, I'm, I'm pretty sure, I'm trying to think of Johnny DePuglia, who who runs their international scouting. I'm pretty sure he was with the uh, the Red Sox when they signed Jose Iglesias. So, um, you know, I, I'm sure they know uh, the, the Cuban players and, and I'm sure they know Jose Abreu extremely well. Um, but like you said, it's 
you know, what, what's going to happen with Zimmerman. It's, it, it's, if, if you're an American league team, you, you have a little bit more flexibility because you have that DH option, whether it's for a Brayu or for somebody else uh, that you want to put there. But if you're in the national league, you really have to have, I mean, you know, the, <laughs> There, there's teams that could use him as an upgrade, but there's just nowhere. Is it enough of an upgrade? And, and is there is there going to be a spot to put the other guy? There's the American League teams. I think certainly have an advantage uh, in this situation. And Ben, I think it's you know. So one of the consistent Twitter Twitter questions we have. I'm just checking our feed. It really does seem a lot of people are asking, can this guy play another position? It sounds like. I mean, just looking at him, you don't see too many 6'3", 250 left fielders in pro ball. He's probably limited to first base, right? Yeah, and I think, you know, it, it's interesting. A lot of guys come over from Cuba, and, you know, their their bodies improve. They get in better shape. They, better, they get into better conditioning. You know, in Cuba, it's tough. I mean, we were at that series when the United States – you know, when Cuba came over to the United States to play the U.S. college national team, and there were a lot of guys just, to be blunt, like, they just had guts. Yeah, no, <laughs> I mean, no doubt. Soft bodies. Guy, there was one guy who, right before they were taking the field to, to go start warming up, was eating a bag of chips. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was, it was, it's very unusual to see. I mean, look, like Alexander Guerrero uh, this shortstop who come who came over from uh, from Cuba, really good offensive numbers in Cuba, never stole bases in Cuba. Now he's you know running plus times, um, yep, and and he's he's really transformed his body. You know, a lot of times I, I think that I think that's probably going to happen with Abreu. I think he's probably going to you know trim down a little bit. Obviously, scouts have concerns about the body, uh, but it's you know it's. It's you're not going to get him to you know down to like 220 or something, and he's going to be <laughs> out there running around in in uh, you know right field or, or left field or something like that. You, you got to put him at at first base or or DH only. Uh, Even if he's not fat, he's big boned. That's for sure. I mean, yeah, just... he's just a, a big heavy guy. It's it's not a lot of at least like Cabrera like. You can, I don't like Cabrera. I, I think Cabrera is actually like a, he's a terrible defensive third baseman, but he, he's, a, he, even with him, you know, he has some experience before right. playing third base. He has the arm strength to play there. It's not like his hands are terrible, but it's a uh, fitness issue really with Miguel Cabrera and he, and a size issue. He just, he, yeah, I mean, he's gotten more fit, but he's also just too big to play third yeah. base now. And if that is your absolute bar, like bare minimum for playing third base, and I my bar would be a little bit higher than that, but I understand why the Tigers do it. Yep. Um, if that's it, then <laughs> I mean, a brave is, is clearly below him. It's 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 like we said, it's just first base or DH only with him. Yep. Let's just I'll just run through a lot of these Twitter questions, and we've talked about a lot of them. But um, one quick thing, and then I'll get to this. Uh, I always think that this is the most interesting thing over my time at BA with the Cuban guys. Is that when you're signing a Cuban player, first off, what you said with with Gonzalo, with Guerrero is interesting because very few of these guys come to the United States and get skinnier. You know, it just doesn't happen. Um, I, I can't blame any of them. They're coming to a land of gluttony, frankly, and they're given giant checkbooks that they never had and. I just think it's very difficult to expect 
uh, a guy who's coming from a situation of want. I'm not judging their political system or economic system or anything, but coming from a situation where you don't have everything you want to where now you can have almost literally anything you want and to expect them to be ridiculously disciplined and about their diet and about their workouts. I don't think that's too much to expect. And for every El Duque who's come over, and El Duque was a unique athlete um, uh, who maintained an unbelievable physique and physical ability, for every El Duque, you have like 10 Levans who get big, or Contreras who didn't get sloppy big, but this was bigger than he had been in Cuba. And I think it was difficult for him to handle, um, you know, just uh, that, that different uh, lifestyle. So the, just, and just the, again, the, the biggest separating factor between Major League Baseball and everything else in the world is the grind. And Cuba's uh, Serie Nacional is 90 games in a, in a regular year. So you're basically playing a little bit more of a short, it's almost, it's closer to a New York Penn League schedule than it is to a Major League Baseball schedule. It is, and you talk, and, and that's actually and that might be a concern with Abreu too. I mean, he has a history. I mean, he was a shoulder injury. He sat out. Great point. You know, some time in the what was it the World? I think it was the World Port Tournament that they just came off with with an injury too. Right. Um. So uh, <laughs> durability is a question for any a player, any nationality, American, Dominican, Japanese, whatever. But especially when you've played and you're. And your muscle memory is a 90-game season and then some tournaments. And that's not what Jose Abreu has to get ready for. So I think those, those factors are always unknowns and um, for any Cuban player, not just specific to Abreu. Um, but I think the fitness issue, you know, I, I specifically asked a couple of scouts during that USA-Cuba series. Um, and I asked a guy with USA Baseball, uh, Eric Campbell, um, you know, do you, his thoughts on like the, we were talking about pitcher velocity in Cuba, like you were talking about. And one of his points was, well, I'm not going to say that what we do here is better. It's just different. And that's something you get. The more you talk to scouts who have a lot of international uh, experience, I, I'm wondering if you've gotten that, Ben, because my take is almost always from a guys who've coached with USA baseball, like Ernie Young or Kirk Champion or guys who've been on these coaching staffs. And their opinion always seems to be, well, they do things different over there. Are the college guys? I don't know if what we do is better. I think what we do is better, but I'm not sure because what they do works for them. And but I, I don't think that – I wonder, do the scouts think the same thing or do they think that what they do in Cuba is as good or do they, or just, or do they, just, or, or do they view it like as different or do they view it as inferior in terms of uh, training uh. and all that kind of stuff? I, I think you and I could probably talk about this for for like three hours. Yeah, I was, to, I was afraid to bring it up with the podcast, but I had to go there. Because I, I, I think it's very multidimensional. One, I think that what – over time, I think the individual countries – and remember, Cuba is – it's not like Japan where you can bring in foreign imports or, or the United States where you bring in players from all – uh, different places. Also, Cuba is completely closed off. It's only Cuban-born players who are in there who that's haven't always, left Cuba. That's always so, fascinating to me, Ben. That like even they, they have relations with other countries. I'm always surprised. Like even I, I I wondered this a few years ago. Like would Venezuelan guys who wash out in the U.S. minors try to go play in Cuba? Maybe because the Cuba and Venezuela had these relationships. But that never happened. I mean, even no matter yeah. how much Cuba and Venezuela had these economic ties and these political ties, uh, you know, Cuba's league stayed all Cuban 
which I just think was fascinating. Yeah. I mean, you'd have to be, well, obviously they don't pay, you know, the players. Yeah. You'd have to be like a complete washout, nothing else right. <laughs> going on. And, and you want to, you know, go and, and live in Cuba. Um, but, but to me, what stands out is I think countries, the way that baseball develops in those countries evolves, you know, relative to, to do what's best to have success in that league. Right. So you see in Cuba, there's not a lot of guys who throw all that hard. So in the United States, if you're facing a guy who's throwing, you know, 95, 96 miles an hour, you can't have a long swing to the ball and, and you've got to be able to do certain things, you know, what we consider more, you know, mechanically efficient to get to the ball, to get the bat head out there and to be able to, you know, be able to hit that pitch, but also adjust to, you know, really sharp off-speed pitches that you see here, too, in the United States uh, in the major leagues. Whereas in Cuba, you're facing a, guy, a lot of guys who are probably throwing, you know, 85, 89 miles an hour and also throwing you a lot of slop stuff. If you're, you know, Yulieski Gurriel or some other, you know, Cuban hitter with a ton of power, you can have a, uh, you know, a like Gurriel has this exaggerated bat wrap where he's basically pointing the bat head or the the end of the bat directly at the pitcher. Yeah, it's I mean, almost like it's almost like at three o'clock. If you're looking at a f clock hands, the bat's like at two thirty or three o'clock with Gurriel. I mean, he's really it's exaggerated. Yeah. So you develop that would be you know there's guys in in the United States over time who've who've done that and, and had success, but you you wouldn't want to teach a, a hitter in the United States to do that, that would be something that you would typically want to change. But for him, it, I mean, one, he has, he has just terrific bat speed. So I, I think it actually, there's people who think it would probably work for him in the United States anyway, but it's like a Gary Sheffield. It's like a Gary Sheffield type of stance. He doesn't have the wag, but he has the bat pointed kind of to slow himself down and get himself on time. Like Sheffield did basically. Yeah. So you see a lot of stuff like that where it's okay. Well, it doesn't work in the United States, but when you're in Cuba, all right. Or like Alfredo de has that, you know, completely all out swing for the fences swing. I mean, are you going to change him? I mean, how are you going to tell Alfredo de who's won, you know, multiple MVP awards in Cuba, right. who consistently posts some of the best numbers there. I mean, how are you going to tell him what he's doing is wrong when what he's doing might be might be ideal for what the for the competition level that he's facing? Now, if he has aspirations or, or they're trying to come over to the United States, it's it's a little bit different. There's there are more legitimate questions about whether that would play uh, against major league pitching. But you see the same stuff in whether it's Cuba or whether it's Japan. Like you see more guys throwing. Uh, splitters and, and trying to pitch backwards a little bit more. Um, you know, they, a lot of those guys have like hooks or wraps in, yep. in their arm action um, or, or even just the college game. Like what's optimal for winning in college baseball might not be optimal for, uh, for having success in, in the minor leagues or, or having success in the major leagues. It's, I think people – train and condition the players themselves and it evolves over time to be optimal or what they believe at least is optimal to to what best suits their environment and i don't think that i mean i think obviously i think that major league teams develop players the way that they think is is optimal 
but I think that just because they do things a certain way that might be different from what they do, uh, say, in, in Japan or maybe even in the college game, doesn't necessarily mean that that's the authority on this is, you know, unquestionably the best way to do things. Yeah, uh, that's a good short version of that answer. And You mentioned Despagne. Uh You wrote about him earlier this year. He's playing in the Mexican League. He's playing professional baseball in Mexico. He's technically a AAA player this year. Uh, with Campeche, with the Pirates, and he's hitting 338 there with eight home runs in 33 games. Uh, entirely predictable 27 to 4 strikeout to walk ratio. But this guy, what he does, he hits and he's hit everywhere. He's He's been clutch. He seems like he always has big hits. I'm thinking of that game winning home run he hit in 2011 against the U.S. College National Team. Might have been 2010 in the FISU World Championship. Uh, this guy is a hitter with huge power, and I love. That his Mexican league team lists him at five foot eight, two hundred fourteen pounds. So, you know, <laughs> what is this guy? This is just atypical. And I think I think Cuban baseball is basically uh, what college baseball would look like if it had a very closed pool of the best athletes, and they all had to go play college baseball because it's a similar schedule. Um, and also, a lot of these guys uh, in Cuba use metal bats in international tournaments and they use a lot of metal bats as amateurs just like americans do and ben correct me if i'm wrong i don't think any dominicans use metal bats because if you're trying to get signed by a pro club you're using wood bats when you're uh working with a trainer you're working out with wood when you're 15 aren't you yeah and a lot of the cubans are i mean it's now it's, it's a lot of wood bat too uh so that that obviously helps a lot of the evaluations now but yeah i mean unless you're in like the Unless you're on like the RBI, like the RBI program, I th right. think uses metal bats at those international tournaments. But yeah, once you're and once you're with a trainer, once you're playing and, and trying out for teams, it's it's all wood. Well, um, let's let's go back into some of these Twitter questions because a lot of them some uh, of these other players, and we should uh, we should wrap up soon. Um, uh, ben, uh, Ben, no, I'm sorry, Bob Maripol asked uh, Alexander Guerrero and his status with OFAC and potential in Major League Baseball, and you just Broke down Guerrero in a subscriber report uh, the other day, uh, I guess uh, end of July, so I guess two, three weeks ago, and you mentioned him earlier in this podcast. There's a right-handed power-hitting potential middle infielder, it sounds like, Ben. Is that the short version? Yeah, I mean, the teams that are the highest on him are going to see him as maybe a shortstop. I, I think he was, he's going to be, if, if you put him at shortstop, he's going to be a below-average defender at shortstop. Right. I think most teams would say that his best fit is at second base uh that you know the hands are fine there it's uh better range to his left than than to his right um so i think shortstop is is a stretch for him although if some team really has a desperate need you might squeeze him in there uh but what, what stands out with him is the the teams that are the highest on him see him as an offensive minded second baseman who you know the power is is the draw with him it's 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 above average raw power and he he hit well in cuba it wasn't a you know a one-year fluke either he he has a track record of hitting over several years what's interesting i mean about him like in, he's like 26 years old now during international tournaments they didn't really use guerrero for whatever reason that was the cuban evaluation on him hmm. they would bring over you know, uh, Erisbel, Barbaro, Aru, Baruena. Um, well done. That's a tough name. 
And yeah, I think I spelled it wrong like four times <laughs> when it's, I wrote him up from the U.S. series. It's like R U A Bar U A Na. Yeah, it's, but it's a, that, that's hard to remember. So they would use him like us, and and from a really young age too. And obviously, they don't even have uh, you know Iglesias or or Echeverria to <laughs> to Brit to use anymore. So um, it's remarkable they have three guys who are just outstanding defensive shortstops. So they would use him. They would. They would use, uh, you know, Lendis Diaz, who was suspended for uh, or declared ineligible to sign technically uh, over issues with his age. And Guerrero didn't really get a lot of play in international tournaments. And I think when scouts saw him there, they were just kind of, eh, you know, they didn't really see it with him. Right. Uh, but it sounds like since he's gotten to Cuba, he's gotten in significantly better shape. He's running faster. He, like we said before, he's never really a big runner in Cuba. I mean, I think he was like 0 for 7 or something like that uh, in like four straight years stealing bases. <laughs> was not a big runner at all. And as we saw uh, and as we saw with that Cuban team that came here to play the U.S. college national team, defensive catcher is not a, a deep position in Cuba. Oh, man. Yeah, they have like uh, they have yep. Frank Moore at home, yep. who's still there, who's a really good defensive catcher. And, and Pastano is, is still Ariel Pastano is still kicking around a long time guy on their national team. But, yeah, it's um, That's my favorite part about Pastano is, you know, he, besides being the biggest jerk in international baseball, the biggest red ass in international baseball is that outside of Morajon, I don't think he respects any of the other guys who've replaced him on any of these national teams. So he still snipes at the Cuban national team for not putting him on these teams, even though he supposedly retired three years ago. But he still, uh, you see the Cuban media, he still snipes at the sele- at Victor Mesa for picking other guys, which is just, you know, kind of laughable. But uh, Yeah, they have another catcher, too, who's like, uh, <laughs> well, Pablo Sandoval actually was a catcher in the minor leagues, and he was pretty good at it, I thought, at least in terms of throwing out runners. But they have another guy who looks just like... Uh, like a Cuban panda behind <laughs> the plate. So it's, uh, but with Guerrero, it's, there's questions about whether the powers is, is going to translate. Um, some guys see it as like a, like a kind of like a stiff uppercut swing. Other guys say it just kind of looks like an uppercut because of the way of his, his stance is. And they think it's maybe not a, you know, a high average guy, but you know, if you have a middle infielder who can hit for power Yep. Uh, you know, in in the current era, you know, maybe that's that's going to appeal to some teams, but I don't I don't think teams see him. I know teams don't see him as like a premium guy along the lines of like a Cespedes or or uh, or what a Bray was uh, potentially going to be. Um, I don't think teams see him along those lines, but I don't think it's going to stop him from from signing a, a pretty good contract either. But then, uh, as as of now, I think I, my understanding is he's he still has not been unblocked by OFAC. So I, I don't think he's going to. I mean, I don't know when that's going to happen. My guess is at some point, either this week or next week. But um, we're probably going to get a ton of questions on. Well, when is the prayer going to be eligible to sign? Right. It's, well, <laughs> this is a you know, it's what should be a, a long process. Um, obviously, some players like Puig have had theirs expedited i'm not really sure how um, <laughs> but i i think that at some point in the off season i think abreu will be be able to sign if you look at like cespedes last year or a couple of years ago he left and i won't say july and i, I want to say he was cleared in 
uh, either like February or, or March. So I think Abreu will be able to be cleared by then and, and probably Guerrero at some point in the next couple of weeks. Well, one of the other questions we have uh, is about what the heck is going on with Miguel Gonzalez and the Phillies. Another player that you wrote about when he became a, a free agent, uh, there's a verbal, I mean, I think he even wrote about that he'd agreed to terms with the Phillies, but that uh, contract hasn't been 100% uh, consummated, it appears, and there's some complications. Real quick, uh, Ben, I just I just found the box score from the USA Cuba game in 2010 uh, in Tokyo. In the uh, I, I, I'm not sure what tournament this was, but uh, is that the Garrett Cole. Where he, that's, the, that's the Gonzalez Garrett Cole matchup. But just listen to the Cuba lineup that Garrett Cole faced and shut out for seven innings, only two strikeouts, but ten hits allowed, but no runs, 91 pitches. Leonis Martin leading off in center field. Yoilan Cerce at second. I have to admit, I'm not familiar with Cerce's work. Hector Oliveira, who has missed the last two years with what is reported to be a blood disorder. There's always reason to be some skepticism with Cuban players because maybe he tried to defect and failed. He's supposed to be coming back this year, and he's a stud. And he is a stud. He was Jose Fernandez before there was Jose Fernandez, basically. He's more athletic than Jose Fernandez. And I, I was about to say, I believe the reports are more power and, and better chance to be a shortstop. So Hector Oliveira was a stud. So he hit three-hole. Here's how much of a stud he was. He hit three-hole. I listened to the rest of this lineup. Four-hole, Despagne. Five-hole, Suspedes. Six-hole, Jose Abreu, who we're talking about here. Uh, Aldemis Diaz at third. I don't recognize his name. He was the one who was uh, the age issue with the... Uh, okay, yep. I remember him now that you mentioned it. He had three hits in that game. Frank Morahone catching, who we just mentioned, and Yorbis Baroto, yet another athletic shortstop in the nine hole. Now, Miguel Gonzalez facing a U.S. lineup that was Drew Maggi, Nolan Fontana, personal cheese ball, Jackie, <laughs> Jackie, Jackie Bradley, uh, Ryan Wright, who had a great summer that year for Team USA, George Springer, who's in the running to be minor league player of the year, hitting five hole, Nick Ramirez, Jason Esposito, Mikey Matuk, and then uh, catch-and-throw joker Steve Rodriguez behind the plate. So, Rodriguez, Gonzalez in that game, nine and two-thirds, 151 pitches, eight hits, three runs, only one earned, two walks, 14 ponches. So, that was a hell of a game. What a love to have been at that game. But Miguel Gonzalez, basically, that was the peak of his career. Um, seen at the time as maybe the next guy, the next Cuban national team ace, but he had some backsliding since then, Ben, it sounds like. And now there's these complications with him and the and the Phillies. How good of a prospect was he, say, compared to an, uh, a Uneski Maya, who we just talked about earlier in the podcast? How similar was he to Maya? And kind of what's the status there, if you know, as much as you can talk about? Yeah, I think you hit it. It was that's that the scouts who saw him at that tournament were the scouts who were the highest on him coming over. Now, there's also people who saw him in Mexico. I think a lot of American guys went in. Saw him throwing really hard there and started jumping up and down about him. Um, but you're right; it's he's 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 been a very good pitcher in Cuba. He throws harder than Maya. I think a little bit less feel for pitching, but the you know it's it's a good fastball. Usually like 89, 93 as a starter, but he'll get up to 96 um, out of the bullpen or, or if he ramps it up and really needs it. Uh, you know the the issue right now is. You know, obviously, there's there's something that's holding up his contract with the Phillies. What it is, I can't confirm that yet. But there's really three reasons why you would void 
or want to re, you know, have at least have a holdup in a contract. One, uh, there's something with a physical, and Gonzalez, in at some point in the last few years, had surgery to remove bone chips from his elbow. We wrote that he had elbow issues in the past. Uh, you know, that's supposedly what happened with him uh, in Cuba. So I could see something coming up with his elbow. I can't confirm that's what happened with with the Phillies. But he does have a history of elbow issues, and you know some scouts see him as a, more of a reliever than a starter. So that wouldn't surprise me. Uh, the other thing that could happen is obviously uh, you know something comes up with a drug test. They have to you know, they're going to have to drug test him before he signs. Uh, I haven't heard anything about that yet, but uh, that's another just general reason why you avoid a contract. The other those is, are very those are both very reasonable things to. To speculate about, I think. The third reason you would uh, attempt to uh, get out of a contract, especially if he hasn't signed physically a contract yet, in which case you have nothing really, um, is that you change your mind, (laughs) which (laughs) happens internationally. Uh, I know there have been cases in in the past at the amateur level in, you know, Latin America outside of the Cuban market where a team has, you know, agreed to sign a player for a lot of money, uh, not this kind of money, obviously, but relative terms for, you know, the, the 16 to 17-year-old market. And then they realized, oh, something, <laughs> we way overbid for this guy. Or why are we paying this guy this much money? Or all of a sudden his fastball velocity is is dropping. So we need to find a way to... Uh, get out of this, so we will invent a reason <laughs> to get out of it. So we'll say, oh, there was an issue with his shoulder or his elbow or his, you know, his ear or something, something just to get out of the contract uh, or or to get out of the agreement. So uh, that's just the third general reason why you would try to get out of the contract uh, or the agreement. So what happened in this case? Don't know yet can't confirm it, uh, but those are just some of the general reasons why uh, there could be a, a, a hesitation with an international signing in general, uh, and certainly the elbow history with Gonzalez uh, is is going to be a red flag. Ben, that's uh, we, we've talked an awful lot of Cuban baseball today. Anything you want to, anything else you want to throw in about uh, Cuba and uh, and also about uh, Abreu? Uh, feels like we've covered. Uh, quite a bit of that. Uh, it's been it's definitely been fun talking a little Cuban baseball. Anything else you wanted to add before I moved on real quick to the uh, last week's prospect hot sheet? No, I mean it's you know the average. I'm just on Baseball Reference right now. It's you know looking at that. What the average first baseman is hitting in the major leagues this year is it's two sixty one, three thirty six, four thirty seven. I mean that's. <laughs> That's not a very high bar to be, you know, a league average, you know, offensive uh, first base. Now, to be a regular, you, you got to hit a little bit better than that, obviously. But um, I think that that's – I think there's pretty significant upside with Abreu. Like we said, there's going to be a bit of a, a split camp on him. But uh, I think that, uh, you know, he's certainly, a, I think, a better prospect than uh, than me. Uh, and if that's the market for 
for him, uh, it's it's going to be some significant dollars. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I think it's safe to say that I mean, like Puig got forty-two million, Suspedes and Chapman got in the thirties, and this guy, thanks to those successes, is probably going to get a little bit more than that, don't you think? It's safe to speculate that he's going to get more than at least more than thirty million dollars. Is it safe to speculate he'll get more than forty-two? I think, uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it depends on the years and, and how they structure it, but. Um, I always like to try to stay away from the dollars as much as possible, but I mean, he's, he, I think teams are going to value him higher than they valued Miguel Gonzalez. And if Gonzalez is getting $48 million, right. uh, um, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's I don't want to, I want to put a specific number on it, but that's what I'm saying is like, it just, it does feel like the numbers are going to be pretty, pretty sick, <laughs> pretty, pretty big. Yeah, I think so too. All right, let's uh, let's touch on last week's uh, prospect hot sheet, which is the whole raison d'etre of this podcast. Um, and there's some some names, uh, some some droids that Ben that Ben Badler told you to be looking for in last week's prospect hot sheet. Uh, first off, I mean I, Carlos Correa leading off. I mean uh, at number one, this guy's year just keeps getting better and better. I think it's uh, uh, pretty, it's hard to be the top overall pick and be overshadowed, but he kind of has been all year by. Byron Buxton, but uh, if you're the Astros or an Astros fan and you're looking to at their rebuilding project, as bad as things are on the big league level, the rebuilding project's going pretty well, Ben, and it's not just guys from this regime, it's guys from the previous regime, but when you're Jeff Luno and you're through the first draft that he ran as general manager there, uh, he and Mike Elias and that staff have to be pretty pleased with the debut professional season of uh, full season of Carlos Correa. Yeah, it's it was a little bit of a, a slow start for him, but other than that, it's been uh, <laughs> this guy is just outstanding. Like you said, it's it's hard to you know if any it, like let's say Buxton hadn't been in the draft. I mean, you're right. I think Correa would be getting a lot more attention. I think we do give him a lot of attention anyway. But right, it's not like uh, we ignore him. But he, he doesn't feel like he's in the minor league player of the year uh, debate. And I think the reason is is that in the he was in the same league as Buxton and Buxton was better. <laughs> so yeah, but I mean Correa, you have, you know, he, he's that's I mean you draft a guy at seventeen, yep. he, he can actually just physically grow taller. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's what happened with Correa. I mean, standing next to him at the Futures game, I was like, I was like, uh, this guy looks like he's like he's like six four, six five, almost. like he was just physically imposing yeah. and the power that he showed there and batting practice. It, it hasn't shown up quite as much in games right now. It's, it's more, more doubles. Right. And then balls over the fence right now. But, and we brought up, you know, Manny Machado's name before. Um, I think Machado, you know, the, just this, this, because of how big I think Correa is going to be. Yeah. Um, you know, I like it, the comparison offensively. It's two guys with really good hand-eye coordination. I actually think Correa has a more patient approach at the plate. And I think he's going to get, you know, a little bit higher ceiling just in terms of uh, the on-base percentage. Maybe not the like the complete hand-eye, like the unbelievable hand-eye coordination that uh, Machado has where he's just, you know, he can really hit a pitch anywhere it is, even if it's off the plate, and and drive it with some authority. Uh, but I think Correa has a you know better feel for the strike zone, uh, or a little bit better plate discipline than Machado does. Uh, but I don't think he has uh, that that kind of quick twitch 
or uh, or, or like the I don't I don't see him gonna I don't think he's gonna be as good in the field as Machado is. Which I mean, Machado could be hey, you know the Gold Glove guy. He could be. He's probably the best. He's the best. He might be one of the best shortstops in baseball if they didn't have JJ Hardy next to him. So, uh, but I think you know, offensively, it's. Uh, he's he's certainly gonna. I, I think he's gonna be in in Machado's league. We're talking about. I don't know how fast they're gonna try to move him through the system, but I mean, if he's in the big leagues by the time he's twenty, I wouldn't be shocked at all. If if he's not there by the time he's twenty two, I I would be shocked. I can't I can't disagree with anything you just said. I mean, the, the guys this guy gets compared to are guys like Machado, Tulowitzki. If you like him at third base, it's like I, I remember the Astros. One of the Astros officials gave him a, a put, slapped a uh, Aramis Ramirez on him. I mean, these are all really good players that he's getting compared to. Um, you know, we'll see if he can stay at shortstop or has to move to third base. But the players he gets comp to are pretty amazing. And I just I just was looking up, and I'm not I'm not making this comparison, but I do think it's important to. Uh, we mentioned Miguel Cabrera earlier in this podcast. You know, Miguel Cabrera played in the Midwest League as an 18-year-old. He had a 710 OPS with a 268, 328, 382 slash line, and he's 6'4". Correa, 18, Midwest League, 326, 407, 477 right now. You know, uh, Cabrera the next year in the Florida State League is the, the stat line that's always seared in my head that as a 19-year-old, he only hit nine home runs in the Florida State League, but he – he had 43 doubles, and that's where I remember us writing. This guy's power potential is so significant, you know. Um, to do that as a 19-year-old in the Florida State League, I remember we really scouts were really, really very high on him. And um, but Carlos Correa is basically doing that at a lower level, but also a, a year younger. Uh, it's scary upside for Carlos Correa. I think he's a special prospect, and you know, like you said, he's. I think he's gotten quite a bit of his due. Uh, this year, uh, but uh, other guys I want to bring up from the hot sheet bin, uh, Ketel, is it pronounced Kettle or Ketel, uh, Marte? Uh, the way I, the, the scouts I've talked to always pronounce it, uh, Kettle Marte, yeah. but it's sometimes they don't know. <laughs> That's right. But Kettle Marte, the Mariners, uh, just, uh, uh, you know, just what the Mariners need. They've already graduated two shortstops to the big leagues this year, basically, and Nick Franklin moving him to second and Brad Miller over at short. I, I I just think there's a lot of irony there that an organization that probably has been as heavily involved as anyone internationally in the last 15 years has a college guy at shortstop. There are not that many U.S. college players playing shortstop in the big leagues, and the Mariners are one of them, and they have a U.S. high school guy playing second base. So as international as the Mariners have been, they have domestic middle infielders. But Kettle Marte just is like a, a sleeper who's starting to make some noise, uh, starting to get on the radar uh, but a guy that you were on three years ago is a, a, that, that people in that organization uh, thought could develop. Yeah, you know, when they signed him, it was that was the guy from their that signing class in 2010. I think he had like a hundred thousand dollars, so they liked him. It just wasn't like a big frenzied market for him. But guy who was you know really good athlete, very smooth actions in the field, had some feel for putting the bats the ball. Very limited strength, so it's you know when you don't have much strength and you're you know 16, 17 years old, it's hard to do much at the plate. Even if it's just you know you can make contact, but you're gonna you know those you're just gonna hit you're gonna hit ground balls, but they're gonna be slow. They're not gonna get out of the infield. You're not gonna be able to drive the ball too much. And and he had a solid year actually in the Dominican Summer League his first year. Uh, we put him in the DSL top 20 list that we put out that year. 
I think that was the year we had uh, Bogarts in it too. Uh, but he was always okay. just kind of this under the radar guy who, you know, there was always this like breakout potential with him. But with these, like, like even with like you talked about, like Miguel Cabrera, who was certainly not under the radar. He was a huge deal when he signed. It was like one point nine million dollars. I mean, that was in nineteen ninety eight money. I mean, that was huge, yeah. huge deal when he signed. So he had, I mean, he was kind of like the Miguel Sano of his day, basically in terms of the attention that was on him from day one. Yeah, but even he was like, there was always raw power there, but it wasn't showing up in games really until I think he was like twenty years old and then starting to hit double A. Um, but with, you know, with Marte, you know, it, they, they pushed him, they skipped him over the Arizona league last year. They put him straight to the Northwest league, which should be an indicator that, all right, they, they really like this guy, but it's, it was a very aggressive move. He struggled against a lot of guys who are, you know, just coming off their junior year out of college. They're, they're sent to the Northwest league. Marte's an 18 year old kid in the United States for the first time and, and facing those guys, it's, he, he was pretty overmatched. I think he kind of got lost in the shuffle a little bit. And then this year to start out, he was, eh, you know, nothing, nothing spectacular. And now over the last like two weeks, <laughs> he's been out of his mind. I think he was hitting like, like over like 600 or something like that. in his last like 50 at bats. Um, it's just, it's, it's a very efficient swing. Works for him. He, he puts the bats to the ball. Uh, it's, you know, a lot of doubles power. He's not going to knock the ball out of the park. He might be like a five to 10 home run guy. Although he's like six foot one, I could see him having a little bit more juice in there uh, once he gets a little bit stronger and, and uh, becomes more comfortable at the plate. But um, this, I, this could be a, a guy who really breaks out for them if he can keep this up. Uh, you know, for what's left of the season and, and next year, he's, I think he's definitely a guy who's, who's on the rise. Yeah. And the uh, last but not least, uh, you know, a guy who, again, who had some attention on him last year, uh, Franklin Barreto, another guy who made the uh, hot sheet this week at number eight. Uh, I don't mean to, I, mean, I just think it's natural to focus on some of the international signings with you, but Barreto, like you wrote uh, on Friday, you get paid w- when you have present hitting ability in Latin America this guy had present ability when he signed. He has present hitting ability now, and that's that's why he keeps on uh, making prospect lists and, and and has a lot of uh, prospect buzzes. Frank, Franklin Barreto just will not stop hitting. Yeah, if he <laughs> we put him number one on our uh, July second international list last year. If he if he didn't hit in the Gulf Coast League like this, I, I would have been <laughs> I would have been very disappointed because everybody I talked to. And it's just everywhere he's gone since he's like 10 years old, he's been in like Venezuelan international tournaments since I think he was like 10 years old. I'm pretty sure I have to go back and check, but it certainly what is when he was as young as 12 and everywhere he's gone, he's always been the best hitter everywhere he's been. He's played against, you know, team USA. He dominates against them. He hit home runs in games. It's, it's just a, it's a very good swing. He just has such great feel for hitting. Now he's, like five foot nine and like 175 pounds. So it's like a thicker body. He's not going to play shortstop. I don't think unless he makes some dramatic overhauls to his defense, but he he's a good runner. You know, he was like a 70 runner when he signed. I don't know that speed is, is necessarily going to hold up, but I think he runs well enough where you can put him in either center field or, or you can put him at second base 
uh, where you know arm strength is is less of an issue uh, and, and the, the defensive demands aren't quite as high. So I think this is a guy who should hit a lot. I mean, he should move pretty quickly just because of how advanced of a hitter he is for his age. Um, you know, the, you, the comparison uh, that I've heard that I like the most is like, kind of like a Shane Victorino type of player. Uh, not a real big guy, but just good feel for hitting. Probably hits you, you know, if you really like him, 15 to 20 home runs in his prime. Uh, there's there's a lot to to like here. That was a really good sign by the uh, by the Blue Jays. Yeah, I mean, right now the state of their farm system, he might be their top prospect in the whole yeah, Blue Jays system. Roberto Osuna is is, uh, is having some some health issues with with his arm. Um, I mean, just the the bat that he brings. He's I don't know if he's going to be number one in that system or not, but he's certainly going to be somewhere near the top going to be high and it's not like they have a first round pick from this year that's going to displace him so <laughs> no i mean dj davis is you know having a solid year he's kind of slowed down a little bit i do love, uh, i do love dj davis uh, yeah i mean it depends you know if stroman is, is still there he i think he's in the mix um but obviously they traded away obviously some of their their better arms from uh from exactly. the previous drafts who've who've all you know to their credit worked out you know really well were really good draft picks but um, but obviously they've they've thinned out their farm system a little bit with some of those trades. No doubt. Ben, we've uh, run well over an hour, but uh, for an emergency podcast, we had a lot to say. So <laughs> uh, plenty plenty of uh, if if you have more questions, obviously for either one of us uh, regarding Cuban players, uh, Ben's seen them. Uh, probably Ben, I would say you're probably more informed about Cuban players than you've ever been, having gone to Japan to see them in the WBC, then come here and. And seen a second level of player here in uh, uh, here in Kerry and Durham, and not so much just from seeing them, but seeing the scouts who see them uh, as a matter of course, and really getting to know uh, those guys even better, and really getting uh, kind of almost ensconced really in Cuban coverage and the timing. I think fortuitous, uh, considering how many players are just coming out. So uh, great job! Enjoyed the write up on Guerrero, enjoyed the write up on Gonzalez, and especially uh, on Abreu yesterday. So. Uh, Obviously, if people have more questions for Ben, hit him up at, at Ben Badler on Twitter or hit me up at, at John Manuel BA, and I'll probably direct you to Ben. Uh, anything else, Ben? No, it's, uh, <laughs> I think that's, uh, I mean, you've seen a lot of Cuban players coming over. I don't, I don't think it's going to slow down. doesn't seem like it's going to slow down. And uh, in, a, in a country of 11 million, uh, 11 and a quarter million, it's basically the same size, uh, a little bit bigger than the Dominican Republic. So, if, uh, if Cuba were ever to open up, or it seems like it doesn't even need to open up, the amount of uh, baseball talent coming out of that uh, out of the island uh, has not decreased. It does not seem. It just uh, it ebbs and flows everywhere, and uh, the the flow right now is in hitters, and right now they're flowing uh, to the United States. And, uh, and Jose Abreu is the latest one. Uh, good stuff, Ben. For the for Ben Battler, I'm John Manuel. You've been listening to another edition of the Baseball America Prospect Handbook Podcast, brought to you by DraftDay.com. For Ben, I'm John. So long, everybody.